plagues have begun, we see that Israel had come into Goshen because there's a famine in the land. But Goshen was a very beautiful place and Egypt was very wealthy. So they were seduced by the lust of their eyes and started to assimilate, which made it real easy for Pharaoh to enslave them. And their slavery became really too hard for them to bear, and they called out to Hashem to deliver them. Well, when he got, he rose up Moses, and he sent them in there, and Moses says, I'm going to take my people out into the wilderness so that we can go serve our God. Well, Pharaoh didn't want to hear it. So he kind of like tightened his grip on them. He doubled their workload. And the people even said, to Moses, no, you put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill us. So things got pretty bad for him. So Moses went up to Hashem, and he's like, I thought you were going to deliver us. What's going on? And Hashem was like, don't worry, because now you will see what I'm about to do to Pharaoh. So those are some pretty uh, pretty big words there. So we're going to see what is it he's going to do to Pharaoh. It's not going to be pretty. So we start out right here. It's Vayira, uh, and the root word for Vayira is Ra'ah, and it means to see an appearance understood or perceived. So it's the things that you see around you, Ra'ah. Now, uh, according to the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, to see means to know by revelation, to have faith and reliance on, to hear and tend to, to visit or experience. So, basically the weight of this word here, in the name of the portion, what we see is that something is about to be revealed. And the children of Israel, and Pharaoh especially, are about to experience this. So what is it that's about to be revealed? Well, we're going to find out here in a moment. So the portion starts out with Exodus 6-2, and it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, Ani yod which is, I am the Lord. Well, what does this mean? Well, according to Rabbi Shlomo Itzaki, also known as Rashi, this term implies God. God's trustworthiness to carry out his word, which includes punishment for sin, reward for virtue. Thus, God began his rebuttal of Moses by assuring him that his pledge to the patriarchs would be fulfilled and that Moses had been sent as his emissary to do so. Now, this is interesting because where, where did they come into e Egypt at? They came into Goshen, right? Well, Goshen means drawing near. So they drew into Egypt, and that's when they basically became Egyptians. And then he said, Moses. What does Moses mean? Drying oh, out. Wow. Moses is going to take them out. Where's he going to take them out from? Egypt. <laughs> now, if you know your Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, yes. out of the house of bondage. Right. So, where did Moses draw them out from? The house of bondage. The house of bondage is not the law of God. Today, people will say, say to you that the law of God is bondage. No. According to the Torah... Egypt is bondage. And where is Egypt? The land of Pharaoh. Yep. Not the land of God, the land of Pharaoh. That is the bondage. And Moses is drawing them out from there. So, Rashi says that this pledge to the patriarchs is going to be fulfilled. Well, who are the patriarchs? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is this pledge? Well, we'll see. We've got Exodus 6.3, it's the next verse. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from the Egyptians, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So this covenant is the pledge that he's about to fulfill. 
And uh, he's remembering it because of the groaning of the Egyptians. Well, how does this relate? Well, to make sure that we're all on the same page and we understand where it comes from, we're going to go back and look at the covenant that Hashem made with Abraham. We're going to go to Genesis 15. This is where the, the covenant is made. And this is what he said while he was making the covenant. In Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, so now we see that Hashem didn't just come in and rescue the people from Egypt because it was Tuesday, and he had nothing better to do. <laughs> the reason he's coming to rescue them is because it's part of the covenant. He built into the covenant with Abraham, which is still in effect today and for eternity. He yes. built into this covenant that he will rescue his people. He will save them. He will deliver them. This is part of the covenant. And specifically, he's talking about Egypt. Yeah. So, <clears throat> now before we go any further, we need to ask ourselves, why is this relevant to us today? I mean, every, Why? Because we are commanded to go over the events in Egypt every year. It's, it's a command. It's commanded several times. Remember that you were a soldier in the land of Egypt. Why? Well, I'll give you a good reason right here. We'll go to Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So, so pointing out the obvious here. The events of Egypt happened you know, some 3,500 years ago. They are what has been, right? So according to Ecclesiastes 1.9, they are what will be. Okay, so now let's do, do an example here. The events of Egypt, you know, a lot of the prophecy in Scripture happened, you know, they're, they're cyclical. They'll happen on a small scale, on a big scale, on a small scale, but they just happen again and again. So these events in Egypt, here we see in the time of Moses, that these events happened on like a national scale between the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel. And then you go forward a few years, you go to the time of Messiah in the first century, these same events unfolded again. But they happened on a spiritual level. And then you go forward even further, you know, to the latter days, you know, that we read about in Revelation, these events, exact same events are going to happen again. Yes. But they're going to happen on a global level. And they are going to make these events in Egypt look really small. <laughs> so, you know, but how does that relate to us? Well, because these events also happen in our daily lives. I mean, it relates to every single one of us now in our own lives. See, what am I talking about? Well, the events of Egypt, they, they, eventually the culmination of this was the people who were led to the promised land, right? Mm -hmm. So the promised land is, is like a metaphor or an analogy for the rest that God is going to give us in the last great day. And this new Jerusalem comes down and he's going to dwell with us and we're going to dwell with him for eternity. That's the promised land. That's the eternal rest. Well, before you get to the promised land and the eternal rest, what do you go through first? The 40-year journey. And that's metaphorical of our lives here and now. As we wake up from day to day and we go about our, our jobs, we are basically in a spiritual wilderness. We're not out there stubbing our toe on cactus and dodging snakes right now. But we are still going through the wilderness. You know, and... Um, you know, they, they suffered from lack of food and all sorts of, you know, drought and all sorts of stuff and famines. But here, you know, it might be money that, we, that we're lacking from. You know, and the Amalekites would come up and attack them for no reason and various people in the wilderness. Well, sometimes don't we have people that take an offense against us for no reason? You know, it's like the lessons of the wilderness are in life here today. And before you get into the wilderness, what's before that? You have to apply the blood of the lamb on your heart. And then you go to Mount Sinai. That's before you go to the wilderness. 
But even before that, what's before you apply the blood of the Lamb? You are a servant to Pharaoh. That's right. Each of us used to serve a Pharaoh. It could have been money, it could have been our job, it could have been you know, a career, it could have been ourselves. We all had a master before we left our old master and accepted the new one into our lives. So these, this story in Egypt is the blueprint for every one of us to live our lives by. So it's important to actually get down, study this with that, that idea and understanding that these events are important to us. And by studying them, we're not going to be cut off guard by the things that happen to us. Because, you know, it's the easiest way to lose faith. It's false expectations. You think once you accept the blood of the Lamb, life is going to be gravy. You're never going to have problems ever again. What will happen to Abraham? First thing that happened when he came into the land and started following Hashem was a drought. Yep. You know, so the lessons in the scriptures prepare us to, to have the strength to overcome the challenges that come in life. This is why this is so important. If you're tossing it away while well, you're getting rid of the tools that the Lord equipped you with to go face the world. All right, so let's get started here. So we see that Hashem is going to deliver them from slavery to the Egyptians, right? And we know that Yeshua in the first century delivered his people from slavery too. So what we're going to be looking at here in these stories of Egypt is how did he deliver them? You know, last year when we covered this portion, you know, we, we went through the plagues and we, we discussed the why. Why did certain plagues happen the way they did? And the relevance, you know, because he was judging the gods of Egypt, you know, he's going through that. But this year we're going to cover the how. And while we're looking at the how, it's going to lead us to the who. Who is the one who caused these plagues in Egypt? And who is the one who delivered his people from Egypt? So let's get started. In Exodus 6, 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So we see right here, he is going to deliver his people from slavery. He is going to redeem his people, and he is going to take them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now the burdens of the Egyptians were too hard for them to bear. That's why they were calling out. So, does, does this sound familiar? Yes. This is the exact same thing that happened in the first century. The Messiah delivered his people from slavery. The Messiah Yeshua redeemed them, and the Messiah brought them out from burdens that were too hard to bear. This is the exact same thing that happened in the first century. And even in our personal lives, we were all there once, in one way or another. So, in the first century, it was the Messiah Yeshua who brought them out from all these. But here, in the time of Moses, we see that it was the outstretched arm that did all the same things that Yeshua did in the first century. So, now if we want to understand the events of Yeshua and how it applies to us, well, we're going to have to understand this. What is this outstretched arm? Okay, so we see that Hashem is going to redeem his people with this outstretched arm. And the Hebrew word there for outstretched arm is biroa netuya, which means an outstretched arm. It looks like he's stretching out his arm to his people. You know, but get this. What if you stretch out both your arms? <laughs> what does that look like? Uh -huh. wow. Someone's on a, on a cross. So, but, you know, that's kind of cool, but let's take a little bit deeper. Biroa, what's the root word for that? It's zora, and it means to sow, to disseminate, to plant, fructify, conceive seed, to sow or a, a sower. So what does sowing seed have to do with an arm? Well, it makes a whole lot of sense because how do you sow seed, especially in biblical times? You grab a handful of seed and use your arm to throw the seed around. So it makes perfect sense. So this arm 
you take it back to its root, it's a seed. But still, it doesn't tell us much. So let's get, take it a little bit deeper. We'll go to the prophetic meaning of the words here in the Paleo-Hebrew. We have the Zion, the Resh, and the Ein. This is a three-letter root for Zerah. So the Zion represents a weapon to cut or to pierce. The Resh is a head, and it represents a man. The first or the highest can even be chief. Because it's the things that are first, you know, the, the biggest, the best. So you go to uh, Ein, which is an eye, which represents an experiencing something. Which takes us back to the name of this Torah portion, you know, to see. That's the same thing with the eye. What do you do with your eye? You see. So <clears throat> when you put all these together, you know, experiencing, you know, the head, you know, cutting or pierce, what you get is to see or experience the highest man who was pierced. Oh, yeah. Wow, so the arm is really the seed, and the seed is really the highest man who was pierced, and we're going to experience this person. So now it's, it's obvious at this point we already know who this is. But, yo, you got you to use witnesses. We're going to go through and we're going to see how is the, this highest man who is pierced. Who is he? So we're going to go to Zechariah 12.10. And I shall pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of favor and prayers. And they shall look on me whom they pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And they shall be in bitterness over him as bitterness over the firstborn. So who is he talking about here? This is the Messiah, Yeshua, and he's the one who was pierced. Also, we see in Revelation 1.7, See, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Yes, amen. So who's the one coming on the clouds? Right. And he was the one who was pierced, right? Now, obviously, Yeshua, among all men, he's the chief man, right? So he's the one who was pierced. So we've covered the man who was pierced is the Messiah, right? So now let's take a step back. The seed. Is the seed the Messiah? Let's go to Galatians 3.16. And to Abraham and to his seed, the promises were spoken. It does not say to the seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, which is Messiah. Messiah okay. So the highest man who was pierced is the Messiah. The seed is the Messiah. And we know that the arm is the seed, and the seed is the man who was pierced. Hallelujah. A little confusing, but we'll get there. So, okay, so now we got one thing left. The outstretched arm, the arm of God. If you go down the trail, it all leads to the Messiah. But the arm itself is the arm itself, the Messiah. Let's see. We'll go to Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember this portion? When something was about to be revealed? The arm of the Lord was revealed. So who is the arm of the Lord? For he grew up before him like a young plant. First clue. The arm of the Lord is a he. That means he's a man. Who is this man? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Who is this? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. <laughs> whose wounds are we healed? The Messiah. 
and he was pierced for our transgressions. And he is also the arm of the Lord. So this outstretched arm of the Lord is the Messiah, the one who's done all these um, wonders in Egypt. We can also see this in the New Testament in John 12, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Yeshua had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's no doubt. The arm of the Lord is the Messiah. And so far, we are seeing that it is the outstretched arm that will bring salvation to God's people. Because this is one of the things that the arm of the Lord does. In Isaiah 59, 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor there. <clears throat> Therefore, his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness sustained him. So, the Messiah in the first century who brought his people out, who delivered his people from slavery, who redeemed his people and brought them out from burdens that were too hard to bear, the Messiah in the first century was the outstretched arm. And vice versa, you go back to the time of Egypt, this outstretched arm who did all these same things was the Messiah, Yeshua. Because he was here and he was there. Hallelujah. So, let's read through this. We go to Exodus 7, 4, 5. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Okay, so we've already concluded that the outstretched arm of the Lord is the Messiah himself. But then we keep reading and we find out that the hand starts doing things. So somebody might say, ha you know, you thought it was cool, but no, it's mm -hmm. not. But what is the hand? Because it says here he's going to strike Egypt. That's what the outstretched arm is going to do. He's going to bring his children out from Egypt with great acts of judgment. Which is the same thing the outstretched arm is going to do. So common sense would tell you, if the arm does this and the hand does this too, aren't these really the same thing? Common sense would tell you this. But just to make sure, in case there's any, you know, you're ever talking to somebody and they try to throw this, oh, it's my hand, not the arm. Well, let's look at the arm throughout Scripture. Is the hand also the Messiah? Isaiah 48, 13. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Also, Psalms 102, 25. Of old you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So we see here, when the Lord created the heavens and the earth, he used his hands to do it. So, let's also check in Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth. With the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whom it seems right to me. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord Hashem, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm. Nothing is too great for you. Okay, so now we see here that the Lord created the heavens and the earth using his outstretched arm. Right? And he did the same thing with his hands. So, they're the same thing. There's no denying that here. And how is the outstretched arm and the hand the same thing? Well, just look at your own arm and hand. They're attached, aren't they? <laughs> One's really kind of useless without the other. You know, so like, like, let's imagine you know, you're on a horse, and you decide to ride said horse someday, and you tell your friend, I'm going to go ride my horse. 
but I'm going to leave his legs in the barn. <laughs> no, that makes no sense. You can't take your horse and leave his legs. Why not? Because they're attached. They're, they're one thing. Same thing with your arm and your hand. So they're the same thing. So now by logic here, if it was by the hand of the Lord and the outstretched arm of the Lord that the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and if the Messiah is the hand of the Lord, then wouldn't the Messiah be the one who created the heavens and the earth? Yeah. Logic would play out, right? So let's look. Hebrews 1 and 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Who's the Son? Yeshua the Messiah. And it was through him he created the world. Also Colossians 1.16, talking about the Messiah. For all things were created in him, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The Messiah created all things because he is the hand of the Lord. So far we're seeing the Messiah is the outstretched arm and the hand that worked the wonders in Egypt. Wow. So now did he work all the wonders in Egypt? Let's take a look at this, Exodus 3.19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So with what wonders is he going to strike Egypt with his hand? All of them. It doesn't say some or even most. It says all. Also, we see in Deuteronomy 4.35, or 4.34 in the uh, several years after these events, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself in the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So it was the mighty hand of God, it was the outstretched arm of God, it was the Messiah who did all these deeds and all these wonders in Egypt. Also, uh, here in the Torah portion itself, in Exodus 9, verses 1 through 3, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord, who is the hand of the Lord? Yeshua. Yeshua the Messiah. The hand of the Lord, Yeshua will, Messiah, will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Messiah is the one doing this. What about the part in the Red Sea? Exodus 15.4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It was the right hand of the Lord, the Messiah, who cast Pharaoh's army into the sea. He also is the one who split the waters. Isaiah 63, 12. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name? It was his glorious arm. Amen. The Messiah was everywhere back there. So it was the Messiah that redeemed God's chosen people from Egypt. And it was the Messiah that performed the signs and the wonders in Egypt. And as you go deeper into each plague, the deeper you go, the more you see him. This is just on the very top, the very surface, the very basic level of this. And the Messiah is in it. And the deeper you go, the more you see him with the individual plagues and the individual comfortings 
and just all the events through there. You see the Messiah every step of the way. So if the Messiah was the one and all that, why is this so important? Why do we need to know this? Well, because it lets us understand the salvation of the Messiah. That's right. Because, you know, how do you walk out your salvation with fear and trembling? Mm -hmm. You read this in Paul's letters. Well, how did they walk out their salvation? Once they received the blood of the Lamb, where'd they go? They went to the mountain. That's right. And also in Revelation, you know, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, you know, all the people are going to go to the mountain. And what do they learn at the mountain? They learn God's laws. Yes. They learn God's ways. They learn who he is and what he loves <coughs> and how to love him. And uh, it's also an example for us to live by, you know, because we can really get, get the step-by-step -step playbook of what's going to happen in our lives. You know, we don't know every detail. You know, we don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. But with this, we can be prepared for the things that probably will happen. Yes, yes. And it's also an example for us to prepare by. Well, what are we going to prepare for? Well, how many of you here know that there's going to be <coughs> another exodus? Amen. Oh. Well, let's look into it. Just take my word for it. Go to Ezekiel 20, 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you, and I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. So this mighty hand and this outstretched arm that's going to gather us, this is the exact same one we've been talking about. And he's going to gather us, but what's he going to do with us? What's the Messiah going to do with us once he gathers us? Well, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I'll enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord your God. So the events of Egypt are going to play out again. And judgment's not a bad thing. No. If you are a lawful, law-abiding person, the law is good for you. If somebody comes and does something bad to you, and you only did good things, the law is going to come and make things right. Mm -hmm. So entering into judgment is a good thing for the people who actually follow what God says. Crazy also, Jeremiah 23, 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought the people up out of the the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. People have been retelling this story, talking about the Exodus of Egypt for thousands of years. Yes. So what he is saying, people are no longer going to say that because something so much bigger and more important is going to happen that's just going to dwarf that. <laughs> and it's yet to come. Yes. Also we read in uh, Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness yes. and speak tenderly to her. Mm -hmm. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So we see here, the Lord has set up a wedding feast. And this is where his bride is going to come to him and finally call him her husband. But she's going to have to be called out to the wilderness first. And it's going to be like in the land of Egypt. Yes. We can also see this in Revelation. Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So who's this child? It's the Messiah. 
So who's the woman who gave birth to this child? The nation of Israel. Yes. His bride. Yes. Now his bride, which is the woman, fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So the bride is called into the wilderness. And as you read through the events of Revelation, the culmination of all this is the wedding feast. Mm -hmm. It's where you will dwell with Hashem for all eternity. So Messiah was in complete control of the great acts of judgment, the wonders, and the plagues in Egypt. He will also be in control in the great tribulation. <coughs> Take a look at this. In Revelation 5.1. And I saw in the right hand, imagine that, the right hand. And I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the scroll with the seven seals, it needed to be opened. But there was nobody worthy to open the scroll. But then the Lamb came. And he was worthy. Now who is the Lamb? Yeshua. He's Yeshua the Messiah, who is also the right hand of God. Now the Lamb took the scroll, and he started to open the seals. What happened when he opened the seals? Yep. <laughs> Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a, had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, you know people making movies and stuff, they love to use these guys. So, um, this first one came out, why did it come out? Because the seal was broken. Who broke the seal? The Lamb who is the Messiah. So the Messiah is the one who broke the seal and called out this first horseman. So as we keep reading, as he broke the next three seals, every time he breaks one, another horseman comes out. So these four horsemen of the apocalypse were called and sent to do their job by the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So he's the one in charge of this. He's the one calling the shots. Also, when we go to uh, <coughs> seal number six in Revelation 6.12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. So as he's breaking these seals, disasters are happening. Just like in the time of Egypt, the Messiah was bringing these plagues and these trials and these wonders on the Egyptians. He's going to be doing the same thing in the tribulation. Now, here's a connection right here. Do we need to worry about this? No, we don't. Because in Egypt, what's the lesson we learned from Egypt? Those who were his people, who were dwelling in Goshen, were preserved from the plagues, right? He set a division between the Egyptians and the people of Israel. So the same thing is going to happen in the end days. He's going to make a division between them. Because as he's releasing these plagues, he's doing it to judge the wicked. And the people who are following him and love him with all their heart and are actually obeying his commandments, they're the ones who are going to be preserved just like in Goshen. So don't need to worry, because these are the lessons we're learning here in Exodus. That way we're prepared and know what to expect. So the end days, tribulation will play out much the same way as the Egyptian tribulation. And knowing this will help us know what to expect so that we are not taken by surprise. It's very important. And one of the biggest things we can expect is an extended stay in the wilderness. Even if it's a spiritual wilderness. You know, because you know the world around us can be wilderness but this is a good thing we want this if we want to overcome the challenges that are part of this walk we must live as spiritual sojourners and allow the lessons of the exodus 
and the wilderness to prepare us and strengthen us so that we can overcome these challenges. The wilderness is where he takes us out and makes us strong. So, what's an example here in modern world that we can take? Let's say you join the military. The day you sign those papers and you get in there, do they throw a backpack on you, hand your weapon, and kick you out in the middle of the battlefield with bullets flying past your head? Nope. No, because in the time it takes you to figure out how to even load your gun, you're going to be dead. Mm -hmm. So, even today, the army has mercy on its soldiers. What is this mercy? It's basic training, mm -hmm. where they teach you how to do all these things. Now, what does this mercy look like? Does it look like mercy when you're just looking at it? Because this mercy is kicking you in the butt, calling you bad names, and rubbing your face in the dirt. Mm -hmm. But that's what it takes to keep you alive. What's more merciful? Giving someone a lollipop and a soft pillow and sending them out to die. Or working them hard enough that they're going to live. Working them hard enough that they're going to live is mercy. Not giving them the lollipop so they can die. And that's the way God works. He wants us to live. That is his mercy. So, the wilderness. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31. And behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is the new covenant. But... He's using, uh, he makes an interesting reference to when he took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. Yes. Now this word here for took, when you look at this word in, in the Old Testament, you try to find the Hebrew behind it, the most common word you're going to find is lachat, mm -hmm. which means to take. Almost without fail, you're going to find that word. But in here, it's just kind of, it's a little confusing because it's the word hazak. It's not lachat. So, it's the word H2388, Chazak. You all know this word, be strong, be strong, and may you be strengthened. Well, this doesn't really make any sense. It means to strengthen, prevail, to grow firm, to grow strong. Well, let's look at this. One, he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Well, he took them to strengthen them. That's right. He took them so they could grow strong. He took them so that they could prevail. So, this is the training ground. So... What we're going to do is we're going to look at this word prevail. According to the 1828 dictionary, Webster's, prevail is to be strong, but it's also to overcome. Right, now this should be ringing some bells here because we had, we had to learn how to overcome back in the days of Moses, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he was trying to help us do, to overcome. Well, this is the same thing we're going to have to do in the future. In Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, we all want to eat of the tree of life, you know, because that's when we get to dwell eternally with the Messiah and with our God, is when we eat of the tree of life. So, now, what does this overcoming look like? You know, because you can really overcome anything in any way, you know, if, if you're just doing your own, own things. Like, I, I, I overcame that rock by... I step it over it. You know, it's, like, it's like there's lots of ways you can overcome lots of things, but what does overcoming in the Lord look like? Well, we're going to find a parallel verse because right here, the people who overcome get to eat the tree of life. Well, there's a, a parallel verse later on in Revelation that also talks about those who eat of the tree of life. 
Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates into the city. Okay, so those who have the right to the tree of life are the same people who are going to eat of the tree of life, right? Yes. And the people who eat of the tree of life are the same ones that have the right to the tree of life. Amen. So if that's the same thing, what about the one who overcomes? Is the one who overcomes the same one who does commandments? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what does overcoming have to do with keeping the commandments? Well, let me show you. We go to Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was enraged over the woman and went to make war with the rest of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua Messiah. Who is the dragon angry with? The people keeping the commandments and had the testimony of the Messiah. He wasn't angry against no one else. The dragon actually liked what everybody else was doing. But the people who, who were doing this, doing the commandments, and had the testimony of the Messiah, he's the one who was trying to stop. But now this... You know, and obviously that's going to be hard to do it because you're not going to be able to buy, sell, trade. You're not going to be able to eat. You're not going to be able to live in a house if you keep the commandments. Wow. So, so you're going to have to overcome those obstacles to do it anyway. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise because if we go back to the story of Exodus, we should know about this already. <coughs> when Moses went up and says to Pharaoh, hey, let me take my people so we can go serve the Lord. How do you serve the Lord? But, but he's your master. You, Follow his commands. That's, right. mm -hmm. That's how you serve him. So when Moses came to his people and said, hey, let us go serve the Lord, what what Pharaoh do? Tuck him his fist. He's like, no, you're not. I'm not going to let you go serve your Lord. More bricks. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that the dragon's going to do. And even us, when we first came into this walk and we started keeping the commandments, how many people tuck their fist around us? Yes. You don't keep those commandments. Oh, boy. boy, lesson after lesson after lesson. We don't have time to go through them, but you just pick them up here and there. Just Take your time to read it. Preach it, brother. Yes. And so, keeping the commandments is hard. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua, who is the Messiah. It's not that the commandments are hard to do. It's that the world is going to try to stop you from doing it. Because, like Messiah said, no, my burden is light. Amen. These commandments are easy to do. In fact, yes. they're a delight. Yes. You're going to want to do them. It's just the world's going to try to stop you. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. So, in conclusion of all this, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake in the morning. <coughs> so, Apostle Paul saying this stuff should not surprise us. Mm -hmm. We need to stay awake to do it. Well, how do we stay awake? We study God's Word. Yes. We walk it out. Yes. And then that way, we won't surprise us when we get there. Yes. Also, in Romans 15, 4, this is our last verse. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hallelujah. Read these lessons. Understand them. Take them into your heart. Meditate them on the day and night. See the connections with your life. See the connections with everything around you. Not only is it going to help you get through these, you can relate to the people coming into the faith and who are also struggling. Because you can show them this is what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to get through it. This is the point of going through the scriptures. Oh, yeah. And that is what we have today. Shalom.
listening to the portion today, again, I had to go back and I have to read. In verse 5 of uh, chapter 29, it says, And I shall leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. Well, wasn't the fish of the rivers part of the deity? Didn't they worship the fish because the fish was, was their provision? So Exodus 7.15 says in our, in our Torah portion today, Go to Pharaoh, Hashem speaking to Moses. He says, Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And take in your hand the rod which was turned into a serpent. Now isn't it interesting that he says, Go to Pharaoh first thing in the morning by the river where he goes. Why is Pharaoh going to the river? Rashi says, Behold, he's going forth to the water to relieve himself. For he has defied, deified himself, and said that he did not need to relieve himself. And so early in the morning, he would go out to the Nile, where he would perform his deeds, where no one would see him. <laughs> the Midrash, Tanfumah, says, Why did Pharaoh go to the water so early in the morning? Because the wicked one boasted that since he was a god, he had no need to go to the water to relieve himself. Therefore, he went out early in the morning so that no one would see him performing such a demeaning act. <laughs> Sounds like... Another faith that claims Abraham is their father. That is why the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, when he must go out and say unto him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, for I will this time send all my plagues upon thy person. Ordinarily, when a man desires to harm his enemy, he does so unexpectedly, lest he be forewarned. But the Holy One, blessed be he, warned the wicked Pharaoh, before each plague, as it is said, Behold, I will cause it to rain. Tomorrow I will bring locusts into thy border. And he did so in each instance. It's interesting. Hashem chose this exact place and moment to send his faithful servant, Moshe, to this mighty Pharaoh to remind him of his mortality. Because he was no God. He was a man. He was a leader and an exalted leader. If we remember, God put Pharaoh in place. Right? Just like he put Pilate in place. So uh, Hashem chooses this exact place in this exact moment to send Moses, to remind him of his mortality and to inform him that his secret identity was discovered. <laughs> but this was Pharaoh of the days of Moses, right? What about Pharaoh in the days of Ezekiel, our portion which we read in our Haftorah today? Why is Hashem coming against him? And why has he pronounced 40 years of desolation at this time? Chazal tells us that the 40 years is significant and refer us back to Pharaoh's dreams as revealed by Joseph. The seven years of famine are mentioned six times, once as part of the narrative, once related by Pharaoh to Joseph, and once as Joseph explains the interpretation to Pharaoh. And Chazal views, view this as an indication of an intended degree of famine on Egypt for 42 years. Wow. Though only seven years were finally decreed. Thus the words that, that was, were spoken by Yosef in the interpretation of the dream. There's other commentary. The Ba'alei Tosfos commentary says that this was because Joseph asked Hashem for only seven of those, of, of those years of famine to occur during his lifetime. And Hashem granted that request because of Joseph's righteousness. Hazal points out, however, that only two years transpired because of the blessing and prosperity that Jacob pronounced over Pharaoh when he came to Egypt. you believe that? I questioned it. I had to research it. Is that true? Is it true that only there were two years? So I went back to Genesis 41, 54. It says, And the seven years of scarcity of food began to come, as Joseph had said. And the scarcity of food was in all the lands, but in, 
But in all the land of Mitzrayim, there was bread because he gathered in all the grain for seven years. And last year, in our Torah portion, Richard said there's, it had to have been a miracle for, for there have been, to have been enough food for all of the world for seven years of famine. Mm -hmm. There were located the, the, enough food in Egypt for all of the world for those seven years. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe now we have another understanding as to why there was enough food, because there were only two years. So in my investigating, I also read Genesis 45.6. For two years now, this is Joseph quoting, he says, For two years now the scarcity of food has been in the land, and there are still five years of which there is neither plowing nor harvesting. 47, uh, Genesis 47, 13 through 17 says that there's no bread in the land. And Joseph gathered all of the silver that was in Egypt and in the land of Canaan so that they, so that they could buy grain. And that Joseph gathered them the livestock after their money was gone. And then it quotes, thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. The next thing I found was in 47.18. It says, when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we do not hide from my master that our silver is all spent and my master also has the livestock we own. There has not been left any before my master but our bodies and our lands. And then they sold their land. But Joseph gave them the grain that they needed in exchange for the land, except for the land of the priests of Egypt. And yet, when we go back and let's read that, it says, when that year ended. I was like, okay, that year, of course, is, is this all uh, uh, chronological, or is it a different part of the telling of the story? But the sentence goes on to say, they came to him the next year and said to him, well, I wanted to see what the word in the Hebrew, the, the word next, how it translates. And the word was actually the word hashanit, which is from shani, which means second. From the word shana, to repeat or do again. And we wish one another a, a happy new year, Rosh Hashanah, right? The head of the new year, the head of the year. So we can reread that scripture as saying, and when that year had ended, that year, then they came to him the second year. And there is no further reference to any famine in years of it. So only two years of famine. The other 40 were then put on hold until a later period when Egypt would deserve the harsh treatment from Hashem during the time of Ezekiel. Torah.org, which is one of the resources that I use, says that uh, the powerful insight of Hazal suggests that Egypt was presently suffering for the fault that she committed nearly 1,000 years earlier. Apparently, this decree of Egyptian desolation was heavenly ordained many centuries earlier for a similar fault of hers. It follows, logically, that the earlier pharaoh must have possessed a similar approach to prosperity to that of the later pharaoh. Indeed, this was the case, and we discover a similar scenario in the earlier Egyptian empire. The commentators take note of an intentional discrepancy in Pharaoh's dream when he related to Joseph, or when related to Joseph. In Pharaoh's true dream, the Torah reveals him standing above the Nile. And that scripture is Genesis 41.1, and it came to be at the end of two years' time that Pharaoh had a dream and saw him, and, saw, and, and the scripture that I, that I copied and pasted said, and saw him standing by the river. But that word translated by is the word al. It is ayin and alamid. And it means above, upon, or over. So he was either above, upon, or over the Nile. But when he translated that, when relating the dream to Joseph, Pharaoh alters this point and refers to himself standing next to the river, as read in Genesis 41.17. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. It's the same word al for the word on or by, but it's now on the bank of the river. Chazal explains in the Tanakhama that Pharaoh truly regarded himself as a deity who was responsible for creating and developing the Nile River. 
In his dream, he beheld himself standing above, above the Nile because he maintained this same approach of the river is mine and I have developed it. <laughs> he was, however, embarrassed to reveal his arrogance to Joseph, which is interesting because he's the one that elevated Joseph. Right? Here is Pharaoh talking to a Hebrew slave who's been in prison to get an interpretation of his dream. And Kazal said that he's embarrassed to reveal the truth of the dream in its entirety. And so he therefore carefully omitted the tri trivial nuance. We now discover the direct corollary between the two pharaohs, both claiming to be the sole source of their prosperity. In response to this arrogant attitude of total dependency, Hashem initially decreed for 42 years of desolation from Egypt. Through this, Hashem was displayed that it was he who controls prosperity and that everyone, Pharaoh and Egypt included, depended upon Hashem. The Nile River would be of no use to Egypt and they would realize that Hashem provides for them rather than their Nile. Pharaoh quickly learned this lesson. Soon after ya ya uh, uh, Jacob's arrival in Egypt, mysteriously after Jacob came to Egypt and blessed Pharaoh, the entire family came to Sudden Hall. Notice, two years, Famine. Jacob came down, went to Pharaoh, said, "Yes, we are we are herdsmen. We herd livestock. It's an abomination. It's an Egyptian." Blah. And but bless you, Pharaoh. And Hashem blessed him by taking away the famine. Through this miracle, the early Pharaoh was personally convinced that it was Hashem who controlled the world. Once Pharaoh learned this lesson, the forty remaining years of famine were suspended. Must be his name. In the interim, Egypt developed a hostile attitude towards Hashem and his people. On the heels of Egypt's recent lesson, Hashem completed the process and destroyed the entire Egyptian empire. It would take many years before Egypt would raise her head in pride and take credit once again for her accomplishments. So we begin to read in our Exodus account that God is pronouncing these judgments, these plagues upon Egypt. And eventually we're going to read that the entire army of Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself, had been destroyed by the, by, by the sea. Now, nearly a thousand years later, Egypt did return to her ancient practices, finally rebuilding the kingdom. She's very, very prosperous because of her Nile River. But now Pharaoh followed, following in his predecessor's footsteps, turning to his Nile River, claiming it to be the sole source of Egypt, Egypt's prosperity, maintains that the Nile was his own creation and that it was he who developed it. <laughs> Remember, each Pharaoh is a resurrected previous Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. so, Hashem refused to tolerate such arrogance, and with the first signs of such thought brought, brought to Egypt the formally decreed 40 years of desolation. Hashem reminded the Egyptians and the entire world that it was he who controlled the world, and that everyone, Egypt included, ultimately depended upon him for their prosperity. This reinforces the role, reinforces to us that though we may play a role in our own success and prosperity, we must never, ever forget that it's Hashem who truly provides for us Hallelujah. and enables, us, enables this success to materialize. That's your half for Shalom, y'all. Shalom. Shalom. All right. Well, I hope you guys were all blessed today with our teachings. Um, I'm going to start out with the New Testament portion. And um, as you all know, you were here last week. <laughs> We left off with Israel's assimilation into Egyptian culture. And this week we picked up with Hashem's plan for redeeming his people. And we've been seeing that through the plagues, he's trying to call them out. And he's asking them to Teshuvah and to become his people again. 
But we also see that he's not only asking those who knew Jacob and the teachings of Abraham to come back to him. He's also willing to accept those people who may not have known Jacob or the teachings of Abraham. Through the tribulation of the plagues, we're actually seeing that the faith of a people is being tested and the beginnings of a new nation is being molded. In essence, the Jews and the Gentiles are being grafted in. We see that those who are not blood lineage to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob are actually having to develop a little bit of faith in Hashem. And they're having to endure the trials of the plagues right alongside the wicked. And the people who are seeking righteousness are being called out to be a light. They are being a light when they start to abandon their adopted traditions, false worship, idolatry, or preconceived ideas, and any other stumbling blocks that may have, they may have brought into the faith that would have ultimately prevented them from believing in Moses when he came to them. Remember, we also left off in the last portion where Hashem called Moses a god, that he would be made like a god in the eyes of the people. Why? Because in the eyes of the people, Moses, who is their deliverer, is going to be made into the likeness of Messiah to the people. He is their deliverer. And for those who are not following the obedience of Moses, or who refuse to Teshuvah, they're going to, that is that they were not separating from the ways of Egypt, these people are the ones who are going to be swept away with the plagues. But even the Egyptians, if they were willing to follow Moses, they would be saved and redeemed. And this is revealed here in Exodus 9, 20 to 21, which is in our core portion today. It says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. And this comes into agreement with Romans 2.12 to 2.14. For as many as sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many that have sinned within the law shall be judged through the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law that will be justified. For when the nations who do not have the law do by the nature the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. And that brings us to our... Uh, Idrash portion and Torah connection also. Romans 9 30 to 33. And what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works, which is traditions. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it was written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We start to see that right from the beginning, even in Egypt, that religious traditions that are often held above the word of God, they'll separate us from the Messiah. And those things, those traditions can even include the ones that lead to the denial of the Torah itself. And those will ultimately lead to our destruction, as it says in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Moses, who we now know is the foreshadow of Messiah, he told the people of Israel before he died to follow the teachings and instructions of Hashem, not religious dogmas, and to cling to the commandments that were given to those people, which soon became the books of Moses, and ultimately to choose life. Life, Torah, and Messiah are all one together. 
They're not separate, just as the Bible that we hold in our hands is not a separate book. It is all one, cover to cover. As it says in Deuteronomy 32, 46-47, He said to them, this is Moses, Take to heart the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and that they may be careful to do all the words of this Torah. For it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Why would he warn them? And why would he tell them it was their very life? Well, let's look at the back at the previous verse I quoted with Pharaoh and his people in Exodus 9.20. It said, Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. If we believe what the Lord says is true, we're going to act. Um, also here, John 14, 6-7 says, And Yeshua said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. How about John 15, 5 and 6? I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We don't want to be swept away. So we need to be careful that as we're walking this walk, we're walking it in purity. And we're keeping ourselves untainted from the world. And by doing so, we're showing our faith. And through these scriptures, we see that faith, it actually becomes a very important detail in our lives. And without it, we're not going to be convicted to follow the Torah, which is the truth, wholeheartedly. And without faith, we're not going to be able to accept Messiah, who is the deliverer that's going to be leading us through these troubles in the future. Without faith, we're not going to be able to obtain life in the final redemption, which is the promise that Hashem has given to us. And ultimately, without faith, I'm going to reiterate it, we'll be swept away with the world. So what is faith, exactly? Faith is an action, just like most of the Hebrew... It has multiple meanings. It's going to touch your heart. It has an action behind it. It's not just an empty word. It's meant for us to live it out. Living by faith doesn't mean that we nod our heads and regurgitate religious dogma. It means that we literally live it out every day. If we have faith, we will act. Following the Torah when the world thinks it's useless takes faith, doesn't it? And because faith is acting in wisdom, it's wise that we follow our faith and follow the will of the Father. As it says in Romans 10.5, Moses writes of the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. He didn't say he'll just put them in his pocket, think about them maybe once a week. He lives by them. How about Joshua? Remember when he brought the people into the land, he tried to encourage them to stick to what they had received from Moses. And you can find that in one... Joshua chapter 1, 7 to 8. Only be strong and very courageous, so that you may do and be careful to do all according to all the law which my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right and to the left, so that you may act wisely wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it by day and night, so that you may be careful to do all which is written. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you shall act wisely. Joshua thought it was pretty wise to follow the Torah of Moses. Amen. And uh, they conquered many strong cities. Amen. If we're following the Torah of Moses with a whole heart, imagine what we can do 
and the challenges that we can overcome. It's wise to follow the will of the Father. And it takes faith to act on that wisdom given to us. It takes faith to not work on Shabbat. Boy, is that a big one. It takes faith to follow a kosher diet. That can be a challenge. It takes faith to even change the way that we perceive something. I'd say that's maybe the bigger one. To be humble. How about to apologize for an offense or to pay for something that we feel we shouldn't have to replace? Or how about this one? Having to put our plans aside to help somebody else that we think should be capable of handling it themselves. In other words, we think that they should be able to dig themselves out of their own hole. Preach your sister. <laughs> so it takes faith to let our desires die especially those that involve envy, jealousy, anger, injustice, and bitterness and these are the things that hold us enslaved to this world if we can break free of those things and have freedom we will have life and in having life we will be living out our faith and it takes faith to be joyful where we are and where the Lord has us for the time that we are in why? Because times are changing. We read it in the Word every day. Judgment's coming. Judgment, you know, I mean, that's a scary thought. But when we're living in faith, we'll be joyous where we're at, no matter where the Lord puts us. Whether we're walking through a fire, like Daniel, or whether we're going to be living through the plagues, like the children of Egypt, we are going to come out of it if we have faith. So, James, I have to say he's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. I love reading James. And he comes into agreement with this by saying, Become doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving only yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man setting his natural face in a mirror. For he studies himself and goes his own way, but he immediately forgets what he was like. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, he is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one shall be blessed in his doing. But if anyone thinks to be religious among you, yet he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is in vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans, the widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Mm-hmm. Going back to what I said previously, keeping ourselves unstained. We shouldn't act the way that the world acts. We shouldn't handle the situations the way that the world handles the situations. If we have faith, We will continue to do the things that are righteous because we know that everything is in the Lord's hands and we have faith that he's going to carry us through it. No matter what the world looks like around us. You know, remember when Messiah called out to Peter on the water with the storm. That's the world around us. The world is a constant storm. But if we have faith, when the Lord calls us out to follow him, we'll walk out on that water. So let's not be like Peter, though, and look at the storm and fall. (laughs) Let's be brave and continue walking towards him and following his Torah. Hashem Hashem gave us the Torah and his commandments so that we can live by faith and be a blessing to those that are around us and not just serving ourselves and getting the reward that we think we deserve or taking the best and giving our brothers and sisters our scraps. It is a blessing to be able to give your last piece of bread or last drop of oil to your fellow obedient brethren. It's not a burden. But while in captivity throughout Egypt, Babylon, and even until today, the tribes of Jacob have forgotten about their lost brother. And while in captivity, we need to be like Joseph, seeking the good of those around us and acting in righteousness at all times. Our faith is what sets us free. It will be what sets us free in a future time to come as well. And in the meantime, when those trials of life come to us, 
We need to be able to take them as an opportunity to show our faith through our obedience and seeking righteousness and resisting our selfish nature. When we act, are active in abandoning our old selves to pursue a life of obedience out of a pure heart, we will be righteous according to our faith, which comes into agreement with 1 John 3 to 7. And everyone who has this hope in him, being the Messiah, pur purifies himself even as the Messiah is pure. <coughs> everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was revealed that he might take away our sins. And in him, there was no sin. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. And everyone who sins has not seen nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does righteousness is righteous, even as Messiah is righteous. Why is this? Well, because it's not our own righteousness and it's not our own will that we're trying to follow and establish. It's actually the pattern that we're following, the pattern that was laid out to our forefathers, to Moses. And that pattern of righteousness that was given to all mankind was handed down by the Father himself and written by his finger. It didn't say Moses' finger wrote it. It said Hashem's finger wrote those Ten Commandments. And if we are doing his will, then we are going to be grafted into that tree. And we will be made heirs, as he promises in Romans 9, 24 to 26. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and to her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Praise Praise Lord. Lord.